Father, we thank you this morning that we serve a holy God. And Father, we're humbled in your presence as we, we, we dwell on your holiness. We think about your perfection and we wonder why you've chosen us. Lord, we thank you that you have. We thank you that you love us. And I pray this morning that as we, as we look into your word, Lord, that you would just grip us, Lord. That all distractions, everything that would come against us, receiving from you what you have for us today, would be cast aside and brushed aside. And that we would again today focus on you and receive from you what you have for us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When, uh, it's funny, when Pastor had asked me to speak to Phil on this Sunday, he was going to be away, we were in a, a board meeting, and I was already thinking about some things. I will, from time to time, jot down notes and keep things as I hear them or see them or I go over them in my devotions. And another deacon in that meeting mentioned a passage of Scripture in another context, and it kind of gripped me, and I wrote it down. And I began thinking about today, and I had a couple of time was very short in the past few weeks, just with all kinds of things going on. Uh, for our family personally, and I was debating doing something that um, would be easier or something that would be a little more involved to get into and start. And I just felt the Lord pulling me back and back to this to this topic. And so we're going to talk this morning a little bit about God's will. And I, I gave the title of the message, Who's in Charge? It may not be the best title, but I think it probably at the end grips the challenge to us. Who's in charge? Who's the decider? It's one of the biggest questions in life. Everywhere we turn, wherever more than one person gathers to try to accomplish anything, we have to know who's in charge, who makes decisions, how's it going to be. Governments have tried to figure it out. Businesses have tried to figure it out. We see the struggle in Scripture with Joseph and his brothers. Right? He's just hinting at the idea that he had dreams that indicated that he would one day be in charge, that he would be the decision maker, cause them to hate him. Uh, we see the Israelites asking for a king, trading God being in charge and being their king for a human king, and God arguing with them and debating them and, and telling them, no, please don't do this, and then ultimately stepping aside and letting them have their way with all the warnings. We see these calls in the family structure um, to call for order, to call for things to be done a certain way. The struggle goes on wherever you go. Um, when our boys were younger, probably about five or six years ago, so Isaac would have been about six, five or six, and Ethan would have been about nine or ten we were taking them over to uh, my brother and sister-in-law's house, Amy's brother and his wife. And they must have been going out, too, because their daughter, Haley, who was 16 at the time, was going to be watching the boys. And also in the house was going to be her younger brother, Leighton, who was 14 at the time. So as all good parents do, on the way from our house to their house, we were using that time to encourage and admonish and, well, threaten our boys about their behavior for the course of the evening. And it was a 20-minute ride, so we didn't have enough time. So we had to really make it effective. So I'm threatening them with everything from amputation to torture to whatever it's going to take. You're going to behave. And at one point I just said, listen, you have to do what Haley says. You have to obey Haley. Even if Leighton doesn't, because that was their boy. Isaac wouldn't even talk to Haley because she was a girl at that point. Not a feeling that I was all that upset about. He didn't know the names of some of the girls in his class halfway through the year. Um, I was okay with that. Um, his answer was, Dad, it's a girl. So I was good. But I was worried they were going to follow Leighton's lead. I said, even if Leighton doesn't, you have to obey Haley. Haley is in charge. And from the back seat, I heard Isaac, oh, man, why can't Leighton be in charge? He's better at charge. Right? We want to know. We want to struggle. We want who we want to be in charge. We'd like it to be us. But if it isn't us, we want it to be the person that we pick 
and where things are going to go the way we want them to go. But in addition to groups, it's also the primary question that we face within our own life and within our heart. Who is going to be the real decision maker for us? Is it us? And that's the default position, right? Or is it going to be the Lord? As Christians, are we going to turn to him? There are four main questions in life, four main issues that any worldview has to deal with if you get into philosophy. It all boils down basically to these four categories. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And I apologize, I, I was not able to get notes printed up in the bulletin with, with fill-ins, but I did ask, they left a page blank for you so you can take notes. I will try to go slow for you. I'm going to fail at that, so do your best. Good luck. And um, if there's something you want to catch up later, catch up with me and I'll try and help you. But origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, where did I come from? Okay. Meaning, why am I here? Morality, how should I act and behave? And then destiny, where ultimately am I going? How does this end? And today, the questions of God's will and God's control of our life really focus around those two things, meaning and morality. And we can't really understand those things unless we first understand why God created us and what did he create us to do? What was the purpose of the creation? Why did he create us and what did he create us to do? So firstly, why did God create us? What's our purpose? Let's look at Psalms chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. Psalmist writes, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is saying, when I look around, and he didn't have the scientific knowledge that we do, the knowledge that we have today actually enhances this feeling. When you see the incredible intricacy and exactitude of the design of the universe that allows for life, he says, what is man that you pay attention to him, that you're mindful of him? He can't understand it. So there's a couple things we want to look at when we look at why God created us. First, to remember, he didn't need us. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says to the Athenians, he goes, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. So God didn't create us out of some need within himself. He's complete. He didn't need anybody. He didn't create us for him out of his need. The second thing is he knew us and he loved us before he made us. In Jeremiah, he writes, in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That word everlasting there, that doesn't just refer to eternity from now on. He's not saying I'm going to love you forever. It means an eternity future and eternity past. Before we were even conceived of, before we were thought of, before he made us, he knew us and he loved us. In Jeremiah 1.5, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated or I set you apart. Um, he knew us and he loved us. There's an old song that says, I am loved, I am loved. I can risk loving you. For the one who knows me best loves me most. The one who knows all the flaws, all the dishonesty. And be honest, even if you're married, even your spouse doesn't know everything, right? We hide some of the, we hide the ugliest things about ourselves and keep them to ourselves. The one who knows every one of those things, knows them better than we know them because they're more honest in their approach, loves us more than anybody else. That says a lot about the Lord. The one who knows me best loves me most. So he didn't need us. He loved us and knew us before he made us. And he created us to be part of his sovereign plan. There's a few aspects of this. Why? First, so that we could love him. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. 
So God commands us to love him, but he doesn't force himself on us. Hank Hanegrave likes to say he's not a cosmic rapist. He doesn't force himself on us. He commands us to love him, but he gives us the choice. Why is that? Well, the nature of love is that it has to include a choice, right? Real love doesn't exist unless the person giving the love has the choice to do otherwise. That's real love. Otherwise, it's just hollow. If the loved one isn't chosen freely, right, if the lover is under compulsion, is forced, it's not really love. I'll give you an example. When you, if you've had children, you've been around children, if you pick up your three or four or five or whatever year old son or daughter and you put them in your lap and you say, do you love me? And they say yes and bounce down and do what they do. That's cute and it's fun and it's fine. But isn't it different when they come running in the room and you don't expect it and they jump in your lap and say, daddy, I love you. Mommy, I love you. There's a difference there, right? Because they thought of it on their own. You didn't coax it out of them. They thought of it. That love is without compulsion. It's without any kind of even influence in that case. And it feels so much better because it shows true love. That's why God gave us that choice, why he doesn't force himself on us. The greatest gift God gave us is not our lives. It's not our existence. That's not the greatest gift. The greatest gift he gave us is the ability to know and to love him. That's why he created us. That part of the purpose is so that we would have the opportunity to know him. He created a being that he would then allow to know him and love him and be in communion with him. So he created so that we could love him. Secondly, so that we could love others. Part of that love, God now commands us to turn it outward and love others. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we, forget, we, we kind of gloss over that a lot, but as yourself. It is hard to love somebody the way you love yourself. In the words of a, a famous philosopher who also played a little football, Terrell Owens, he said, I love me some me. Right? We all love me some me. We're all like that, right? It shows. When the food comes to the table, even if you have good, good enough manners, even if you hear your mother's voice and you don't grab the biggest piece, you sure want to, right? Right? We, it's just our nature to be selfish. We love ourselves. And he commands us to love your neighbor the way you love yourself. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Think about that. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Okay, We're not saved because we love others. That's through, by grace, through faith, and Christ's work. But what he's saying here is, if you don't love others, you don't know me. Okay? So we should look for that fruit in our lives and work to develop it. It's not easy. It's work. Right? Um, I told my son we were in their car and we were talking about something else and I mentioned a quote. I think, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, the problem with the Christian faith is not that it's been tried and found wanting, but that it's been found difficult and left untried. Okay? We need to love others. Thirdly, we, he wants us to love him. He created us so we could love him. He created us so we could love others. He created us to do good works that he prepared in advance. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, this great scripture, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, we are Christ's work, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It doesn't say created to have a good time. It doesn't say created to be happy. 
That's one of the great issues when you deal with the problem of evil, is that wrong assumption we start with is that the purpose of our existence is to be happy. That's not what it says. It says here that God created us for good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. That's right. God has a honey-do list for you. He prepared them for you before you were born. He prepared them in advance. And then what does it say? That we should walk in them. What does that mean to walk in them? That sounds a little different than volunteer once a year at a church picnic to fold up tables, which is great, by the way. That's important. Or to volunteer for VBS, which I, I remind you, I suggest you do that if you know what's good for you. Um, it doesn't just mean that. We're walking in good works. That means it's a central part of our life. It's what we do. Oh, I'm so busy. Good. That's what God made you for. He made you to do that. He designed you to do that. And then finally, to have the ministry of reconciliation, to point others to Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, excuse me, Paul writes, Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, and then quotes, be reconciled to God. That's our plea to others on Christ's behalf, is what it's saying. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So this is what he designed us for, to have the ministry of reconciliation, to love him, to love others, and to do good works that he prepared in advance. When we live within the design with which we're created, when we live doing what we're created to do, we have peace. And when we don't, we have turmoil. Now, that doesn't mean happiness all the time, right? We go through a lot of bad things, right? We go through a lot of struggles in our life. And again, there's that misconception that God wants us to be happy. God wants us to be holy. And sometimes he takes us through those things to do things in our lives. Actually, I would say almost all the time, right? He'd use the things. G.K. Chesterton said, for the non-Christian, joy is peripheral and sorrow is central. They don't have the Lord. They have joy. There's, there's happy pagans, right? There's people who aren't Christians who are happy from time to time. They experience happiness, but deep down inside, centrally, they're lost. For the Christian, it's the opposite. Sorrow is peripheral. We have sorrow. We've had loved ones die. We've had things happen. We've had things within our church family and last, that are hard. But it's peripheral because at the center is joy. Because we know Christ. Any tool that's used the way it's designed works well. If you have a hammer and a nail, and you want to drive a nail into a board, everyone but the nail is happy about that, right? The hammer works perfectly. The one using the hammer, this is great. I have the right tool for this job. But you don't clean your windows with the hammer, right? You don't fix your glasses with the hammer. You don't change channels on your TV with the hammer. That's not what that tool is for. You use that tool the way it's intended, and there's peace. You use the tool the way it's not intended, and it doesn't work. And if a hammer had feelings, it would feel insufficient. I'm breaking everything I go near. I'm a disaster. But it's not doing what it's called to do. Right? That's God's purpose. Why did he create us? Then what did he create us to do? What does it mean when we talk about God's will? What does he want? Well, one of the arguments that's used to 
argue against the existence of God, that it's impossible for a good God to exist, goes like this. Okay, the first premise is, if God is all-powerful and God is good, then evil would not exist. You have an all-powerful God who can do anything he wants. He's all-good, so he's kind and loving. Then there'd be no evil. And by evil, we don't just mean people doing things wrong. We also mean natural evil, like tsunamis and plagues and famines, okay? There'd be no evil. Second premise, evil exists. And then the conclusion, therefore God is either not all-powerful or he's not good. Now that argument, if you look at the conclusion, you have to attack one of those things, right? Either the conclusion doesn't follow, this is how logic works, either the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises or one of the premises is wrong. Well, the conclusion follows from the premises. If those two premises are, are right, then the conclusion works. The second premise is that evil does exist. It's pretty easy, right? We, we can't argue with that. It's in the first premise that we have the weakness, that if God is all-powerful and God is good, then evil would not exist. We simply don't know everything. We have, we're not in a position to know whether evil is allowed to bring about a greater good. We don't know that. We're not able to know that. And that's where this falls down. And it's important. We're going to look at there are two different aspects of God's will. And understanding the tension between these two is critical in understanding why that argument is wrong and also to understand God's will in our lives and what happens because there's an apparent paradox that we see between God's sovereignty and the fact that he allows things to happen that he clearly disapproves of. The first type of will that we talk about is God's, what's called his will of decree, all right, or his sovereign will. And this is just God's overarching decree, his overarching will, and it cannot be broken, and it always comes to pass. Whether we believe it or not, it just doesn't matter. Okay, It's going to happen. But it includes sinful acts of men and other things that God doesn't approve of. Let's look at a couple examples. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. The early church is praying here for boldness in the face of persecution that's come and that's being threatened. And they say, For truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They were gathered against him, so that's clearly sin, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There's no question, and you could also throw Judas in there, and, and, the, and, and the peoples of Israel, you have the crowds chanting, crucify him. Those actions were sin. Right? They weren't part that God doesn't approve of those. We'll talk about that kind of will in a minute. But those are things that he has forbidden. And yet, I mean, the, the, the requirement not to lie was violated by the Pharisees. They put false testimony up. Right? They, they tried to testify against Jesus. Remember, they were having trouble finding two witnesses to agree because they were just making things up okay, and trying to twist his words. They broke that law. They sinned. They violated God's will. But what it says here is, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God used those things. So this is his overarching will. Uh, in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, it tells us that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things are worked out according to the counsel of his sovereign will, his overall plan. The second type of will that we deal with, we talk about a lot, and we probably talk about this one a little more, is God's will of command. This is simply what God commands us to do, okay, or not to do. This will can be either obeyed or disobeyed. He gives us that free choice, okay? But God's commands are not suggestions. There are consequences. We don't want to make the mistake of thinking that just because God can use these things to his glory, that it's okay to do them. They do have consequences. And those that we listed before, right, 
who were involved in Jesus' death and crucifixion are guilty and are guilty before God because of what they did. Just like Joseph's brothers were guilty of selling him into slavery, even though Joseph recognizes and talks to him about it later, saying, that was done so I could be here now. God had a bigger plan. But what they did was still wrong, and they were still guilty before God. In Matthew 7, 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who enters the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father. By implication, the one who does not do the will of my Father doesn't enter the kingdom of heaven. 1 John 2, 17 says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God, whoever does the will of God, abides forever. And why did God give us this choice if it only leads to trouble? Well, it goes back to what we said before about the nature of love. He had a greater purpose, and that was to have true love. And, to, and, to be able, and, and he knows that that's better, um, to have some evil to get that. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about the mother, to kind of illustrate this point of these two, two wills in tension, who sends her children up to their room, and anyone who's a parent has had this experience. And if you're not a parent, you had it as a child in the other direction. Okay, So you send your child. Now, this would never happen with our boys, I want to tell you. okay, This would never happen. It didn't happen yesterday. Don't worry. You send them to their room to clean up their room. You know that it's about a five-minute job, maybe 10. If you first have to fight through a grizzly bear to get to the door, maybe it's 15. But there's, it's not that big a job. An hour later, they come down. You finished? Yep. And you go up. What do you know you're going to find? It looks exactly the same, if you're lucky, as it did before you sent them up. It might look worse, right? And I know that doesn't, ha- doesn't happen with our kids, but I'm sure yours are worse. And so that probably happened. And if you don't have kids or you- your kids aren't doing it, you did it when you were a kid because we all did the same thing. I remember being sent to clean things up and all of a sudden realizing it's two hours later and I'm getting in trouble for not cleaning up, not just having made the mess. Um, and C.S. Lewis talks about the mother who does that. And he says, look... He goes, her will was that the room be cleaned. She allowed that will, that command will, to be violated because she had a greater purpose, which was she wanted the children to do it. And she's trying to begin to teach them to do things on their own. She could have gone and cleaned it and had it done and had that part of her will satisfied. But she had a greater purpose uh, when she did it. Having these two things in tension, I think, gives us great comfort, actually. It's, it's, a, it's a tension that always exists as part of life, But on the one hand, we have the assurance that God is in control and he's able to use any situation for our good. Romans 8.28 tells us we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose, even bad things. So we have that on the one hand. On the other hand, we also know that God doesn't say, yeah, look, I'm going to let some bad stuff happen to you because I've got to get something done over here. He empathizes with us. He doesn't approve of those things happening to us even while it's part of his overall plan and he's using it. And so we're not alone as we go through those things, but we have him with us. And also, there's another great blessing and great comfort here. I can know that because he's in control, my screw-ups don't foil his plan. He doesn't sit there and say, what did you do? I had a whole plan worked out, and you messed up. It's ruined. I can't do anything. I can't can't fix this. He doesn't do that, does he? Whatever I do... The illustration I thought of, to, to, and I just thought of it this morning when I was going through stuff, it came to me. Throughout you know, your life, you've, you've moved, you've left jobs, you've been in one social setting, and you've left that setting 
really kind of forever usually, right? People that you're around every day, especially a job, you're on them every day, and then you're not around them anymore. And there's been times that I've left, and I can remember specifically thinking, did I do enough? In the time that I was here, I mean, I did the work I had to do, but was I enough of a testimony? Was I enough of a light? I talked to that guy, and we talked. We talked several times. He knew I was a Christian, but we never really got to, to get deeply into the gospel. He poked at things he wasn't comfortable. I kind of didn't push it too far. I kind of you know, tried to keep a relaxed relationship and earn the right to speak to him, but we never got to that point. Did I fail? Will that man be in hell because I didn't do something I was supposed to do? And I can know that God says, don't worry. You have to keep, now, where you go next, you have to do everything you can do. But I have a way. He may have only, I may have done exactly what he wanted me to do. It may have been a seed. And I trust that that's how God works, right? Not everyone, Paul says, you know, Apollos, uh, I planted Apollos water, but God gives the increase. God's the one who brings the harvest. And so that may be fine. But I can know that if I've messed up, God can still, he doesn't say, oh, no, what am I going to do now? It just doesn't work that way. So how do we find God's will for our life? How do we find out what we're supposed to do and what we should be doing? Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That sounds like a lot of fun, right? The word sacrifice, okay? As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And the word there for bodies doesn't just mean, it also means all of yourself. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age or to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God in your life, God's command will for you. When we come to Christ, we don't lose our free will, right? It actually wasn't ours to begin with. Everything we have came from him, right? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But we surrender it back to him so that he can do what Paul says in Philippians. He can work to will and to act according to his good purpose. He works in us so that our will changes and our actions change according to his good purpose. And he changes us. There's three different situations or circumstances we run into in life. First of all, there are situations that are covered directly by Scripture. Scripture has prohibitions against drunkenness, deceitfulness, cheating, idolatry, murder, which is later expanded by Christ to include uh, angry, excessively angry thoughts about your brother or sister. Children commanded to obey parents. Wives are commanded to submit to husbands. Husbands to love wives as Christ loved the church. First Thessalonians tells us to abstain from sexual immorality. It's not the only place, but that's just one. For, again, in First Thessalonians, we're told to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all things, and stay away and avoid evil. These are situations where we can look at them and say, yep, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. God told me to do this. He told me to pray continuously, so I'm going to pray continuously. He told me to rejoice always, so I'm going to rejoice even though right now I'd like to kill somebody, right? Even though I'm angry, I'm going to, or even though something bad is happening, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to give thanks. But I just got this horrible news. I'm going to give thanks because he told me to do it. I know what I'm supposed to do. God's will is almost always simple. It is very rarely easy. There's a difference. If I go tell you to go move my car and I don't give you the keys, the instructions are simple. The task isn't that easy. Right? There's a difference between simple and easy. God's will is always simple. It's always clear in these cases. He's told us what to do. We don't have to pray about it. Well, you know, should I hate that person? Maybe I should. No. 
you can talk to the pastor. He won't tell you names, of course. But the number of times, and it's heartbreaking, people will come for counseling, and they will say, God is telling me to divorce this person and marry somebody else. Are you kidding me? Have you read your Bible? God does not tell you to do things that go against his word. He doesn't tell you to do that. And that's something, there's, there's situations, all kinds of things happen. And the Bible does have provisions in certain times when certain things are necessary. But God does not tell you to do things that his word tells you not to do, or vice versa. So the situation is covered directly by Scripture. Then there's situations that are not directly addressed in Scripture. Scripture doesn't tell you who to marry, whether to take a job in another city, whether to buy or sell this particular house, um, whether you should buy a PC or a Mac. The Scriptures do not tell you those things. Well, how do we make those decisions? We learn by transforming, by being transformed by the renewing of our minds, and by allowing God to work in us, we learn to apply the biblical principles that are in Scripture to different situations and to have the mind of Christ and to think about them the way he would. I have talked to not just my boys but to others and said, look, and there's a couple of friends I've had. We've talked about situations, and I was kind of giving them some counsel. I said, look, here's the thing. You pray about it. Sincerely pray and ask God what he wants you to do, and I have nothing else to say to you. I'm okay. Whatever he tells you to do, if you sincerely pray, I trust him. He'll tell you. He'll lead you if you're sincere. Um, they're not always easy, but God doesn't always give us every answer spelled out and written in, uh, in sky writing. And then the third area is what you call reflexive behavior. Kind of spoiler alert, this is the uncomfortable part of the message, right? The vast majority of life occurs here. Things that are done, they're just either spontaneous thoughts, actions, or reactions. And um, this is what you do when someone cuts you off on the way home from church on 104. Okay? This is what you do when someone fouls your kid a little too hard on the soccer field or on the basketball court, Amy. Amy, she has never yet, yet, left her seat and run on the field to, you know, throw an elbow or anything. But, you know, she's pretty uh, excited when she watches soccer. Um, could we stop and pray for me right now? Um, Matthew 12, 34 to 36, this is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Brood of vipers, he starts out gentle. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you're evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Uh, the passage we know, if you read it, was out of the abundance of the heart, what's in the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil man produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. When someone bumps me and anger and bile and, and hatred spill out, I can't say, well, that's not me. I'm, I don't know how I did that. I don't know. Yes, it came, it came from inside me. That's me. I may not want to accept it, but it came from someplace. Where did it, it came from inside me, right? When you get bumped, what spills out? That's what's in there. And it's eye-opening sometimes when you realize how much is inside us. Right? Anyone ever been in a bad mood? Right? I know, probably none of you. Um, I'm not, but Amy is all the time. It, it might be because we're married. <laughs> She's married to me, so it's been like a 29-year bad mood. But, um, but when you're in a bad mood, when, you're, when something else is bothering you, when you're worried about something, and you get bumped, what comes out? That's in there. Now, sometimes it's deeper. We hope it's deeper and not right at the surface, but it comes out. That's, a, that's an indication. I've got to work on that. That shouldn't come out. Um, that shouldn't be there. And these things, they just rise up out of the heart. 
Sometimes without warning. Sometimes they even surprise us. But we're guilty before God when we do them. So how can I renew my mind and know God's will? Well, godly disciplines. The godly disciplines of the Christian. And we all know what they are. I'll go through them quickly. First, prayer. We must set aside protected time to pray. We can't say that we love God and not make sure we spend time talking to him. It just doesn't, say it all you want, it doesn't matter. If I tell Amy I love her, and I'll see her next week, and I walk, and I don't talk to her, she's not going to believe me, and she shouldn't. Right? If I tell my kids I love them, but I don't talk to them, they're not going to believe me, and they shouldn't. You have to communicate. You have to talk. And, and that's how we do it. We mentioned the command earlier. Jesus had a great example here, um, separating himself, finding a time to go alone for meditation and solitude and prayer. Okay, we need to do those things. Mention praying without ceasing. The best example I can think of this is my grandmother. My mom's mother moved in with us when I was a year old. My grandfather had died from cancer, and um, she lived with us my entire life. I got married and moved up here, and about four years later, she, um, or six years later, she passed away at the age of 92. And she had come from Norway when she was, I think, 16, 16 years old. Left a boat, saw her brother running through the town, tried to call to him to say goodbye one last time. He didn't hear her. She didn't see him for 35 years. And, and that's just how life was. And that's, that's not a unique story, I'm sure. But, but she lived here, and she was one of the kindest, sweetest, gentlest women I've ever met. I mean, she was incredible. But what I remember about her most, besides the pot with coffee in it, like a metal thing that she would keep on the stove and just fire up the burner a couple times a day to heat it and drink it, that stuff was worse than motor oil. I don't know how. I don't drink coffee anyway. It stunts your growth. The rest of Amy's family is all six foot and above. She drinks coffee like a fish, and she's, well, she's over five feet. Okay, good. But, um, but that's, besides all of those things that I remember about her, here's the thing I remember the most. I remember hearing her sorry, walking around the house under her breath in her Norwegian accent. She couldn't say T-H. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Praise you, Jesus, all day, all the time. It was just second nature. She didn't run into the walls because she was praying with her eyes closed. That's not what that means. But she was continuously in a mind of prayer where she felt God's presence with her all the time. And so she talked to him all the time. Prayer. Studying the scriptures, we need to read the word and also read about the word. Study about the word. Learn what it says. Um, R.A. Torrey said, to pray the prayer of faith, we must first of all study the word of God, especially the promises of God, and find out what the will of God is. We cannot believe by just trying to make ourselves believe. Such belief as that is not faith, but credulity. It is make-believe. The great warrant for intelligent faith is God's word. If you read God's word, it, it, it supports your faith. Okay? As Paul puts it in Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we pray, we study the scriptures, we worship, proskuneo. That word actually means in the Greek to fall prostrate on the ground before someone, to worship them. Now, why would we want to do that? What does it do to our pride when we do that? God is stripping away. He says, worship me. Fall down. Completely submit yourself to me, subjugating your pride. And by focusing on him, we draw closer to him. Uh, last week we were in Indianapolis for a, a, our nephew's wedding and our niece's graduation party and um, all kinds of other things. I think this is Amy's family, so there's a lot of parole hearings and stuff. You know what it's like. But, um, but we're there, and, um, 
in church on Sunday, they sang a chorus that I've, I've never heard it before, but there was one line in the chorus that struck me, and I quickly whipped out my phone and jotted it down. Praise is what I do when I want to be close to you. Think about those times we all go through them when we're praying and we just can't seem to break through. We feel like God is distant. and We feel cold inside. Stop, stop asking him what you came to talk about and just start praising and worshiping him. Worship him. He may have something. He'll get around to what you need. He knows what you need. right? But praise him. Nothing breaks down that wall like forgetting about your problems and focusing on the Lord and what he's done for you already. So worship. Service. We talked about service a bit before. We must sacrifice our comfort for others. There's something easy. You do a gift inventory. What am I good at? What do I like doing? It's just possible that God gave me those gifts and gave me those enjoyments so I would use them for him. Right? Just maybe. That's what they're there for. Use them. And then I love a need inventory. What needs to be done? Let me tell you something. General principle. If something needs to be done, if something comes to you and it's in front of you, it needs to be done and you can do it, God's calling you to do it. You don't need to go home and have a prayer meeting, right? If it's there and you can do it, do it, right? God's given you all kinds of talents and abilities, probably more than we realize that we can do. But we can even do things we don't think we can do. Gideon didn't think he had a chance, right? And God said, trust me. We do this to become others-focused instead of self-focused, which also works in a battle with pride, which is one of the single biggest, if not the single biggest battle that we face. And then finally, fellowship, koinonia. Means, that word means participation. It means gathering together. And by being with other believers, we strengthen and we encourage each other. Now, we're all different. Some of us are more social than others. We're at different stages of lives and everything. So everyone's a little bit different here. Some people just need to be around people all the time. Some people are a little more um, inclined to solitude. But none of us was designed for complete solitude. None of us was designed or made to be alone. We're made to be with other believers to encourage each other. Excuse me. So who's in charge? C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, one of the issues before I do that is this, the idea that this is my life. It's mine. And that, that thought is encouraged by the fact that God's given us free will, right? He's given us that, and he's let us have control over it. But this idea that this is mine, and I will give what I choose to give out of my free will. I will give to my wife this. I will give to my children this. I will give to my job this. I will give to my friends this. And I will give to the Lord this. And I will give to his work this. Whether it's time, money, whatever it is. And that's entirely within my power. And I am giving something that belongs to me. And that's just wrong. We don't own any of it. When we don't give to the Lord, we're not failing to give something that we have a choice about. What we're actually doing is robbing from him something that belongs to him already and keeping it to ourselves. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, talks about this. Excuse me. The Screwtape Letters, if you haven't read it or aren't familiar with it, it's a series of letters from between two devils, two demons. Screwtape, who's writing the letters, they're all written by Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood. Okay, And, and C.S. Lewis, of course, is incredibly creative. And... Wormwood is a junior devil. He has been assigned a human that he is to tempt and keep away from the enemy, who is God. And so in writing these letters, you see, you can tell what Wormwood has said by the responses from Screwtape. And you can also see it's very, how he works in there just the, the bits of vitriol and venom coming out of demons because they're demons, so they're not always nice to each other. And he works that all in very well. But Screwtape is giving him advice on what he should do. He's a more senior devil to tempt his human. 
and, and he, I've kind of chopped this up to put it all together and make it short, but this is what he writes to him about in one section. You must therefore zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Let him feel as a grievous tax time spent required to be spent on others, and as a generous donation time spent in God's service. This assumption is so absurd that if questioned, even we cannot find a shred of evidence in its defense. The man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his property. Much of the modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they own their bodies, bodies in which they find themselves without their consent, and from which they are rejected at the pleasure of another. And all the time the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine of everything that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong. Excuse me. If we insist on maintaining control of our lives and on being the decider, we're going to be like a square peg in a round hole. Round peg in a square hole, sorry. Either one works. That's what's going to happen because we're like that hammer trying to clean the window. It just isn't going to work. Um, we're living contrary to our purpose. But when we surrender to him, we can truly have peace. Now, God doesn't reveal his plan for us all at once. What would happen if God said, here's your plan for the next 20, 30 years? We immediately would see the plan and try to, let's go around that problem and let's avoid all the things that he knows are important. To get to the happiness, to get to the peace at the end, to get through the good times, you have to have the bad times. We would try and stop that. What he does is he gives us just enough light for the next step and the one after that and the one after that. And he keeps us going and he says, just trust me. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. I had a I was thinking of a, some story illustration to close with, and I've got this. I, I read this story about three and a half years ago when I spoke, and so if you remember it, I'm, I'm sorry for the rerun here, but um, it's, it's just an example of someone who understood that their life didn't belong to them and gave everything to the Lord. It's an example for us to look at and read. So I'm going to read the story of David Livingston. And we've got a few minutes left, and you won't be here too late. Probably by 2 or 3 o'clock we'll be done. Um, David Livingston was born in Blantyre, Scotland in 1813. His father used to read to him stories of great missionary exploits, particularly that of Carl Gutzlaff, a Dutch medical missionary. Young David used to look into his father's eyes and say, You know, Daddy, one day I'll be a man like that. I want to be a missionary. I want to be a doctor. I want to serve God. David Livingston got to his knees one day and said this prayer, Lord, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. And the words of God came to him, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He packed his bags and went off to Africa. When he took one glimpse of Africa from a distance, he penned in his journal these words, The haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun has burned within my heart. He married Mary Moffat of the famous Moffat family. Her father was a great missionary. They went to Africa, but his wife and young family couldn't keep up with him. 
Some of his children were dying from sickness and disease. So he said to his wife, Mary, take them home, and I'll see you in a short time. It's just too dangerous for us to all to stay here. So he sent Mary home. Letters would take months to exchange, and some of the most beautiful love letters were exchanged between David and Mary. They didn't see each other for five years. Five years later, when he returned to England, Mary could barely recognize him. During his jungle travels on the way to preach one day, he had walked into a branch of a tree that had completely blinded him in one eye and marred his other eye. His face and skin were burned like leather under the African sun. Another time, he had been attacked by a lion that had torn one of his shoulders apart. Just hours before he arrived, they buried his father. David wept because he longed to tell his dad firsthand of the stories his father had told him about when he was a boy. Um, thirdhand. He was so well respected that when David Livingston walked into any university in the British Isles, students and faculty would rise to a standing ovation because they knew they were in the presence of a, of a giant of a man. Finally, he said to his wife one day, Mary, the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages in the morning sun is still burning in my heart. We need to go back. She decided that he should go alone, that she had to be with the children. She said, when they're old enough, I'll join you again, David. And so he returned alone to preach the gospel to the people of Africa. A long time later, Mary finally joined him. But sadly, on the day she set foot on African soil, she contracted the disease that they had been so worried she would, and she passed away with just, within just a few days. He was burying her. As she was lowered into the African soil, an eyewitness said David Livingston knelt behind the grave, weeping his heart out, and they overheard him pray, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate my life to thee. I shall place no value on anything I possess or anything I may do except in relation to your kingdom and your service. Just as they had years before, the words of God came to his heart. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He picked up his belongings and walked back to his hometown village of Ujiji. When he arrived and went into his small home there, he discovered that someone had stolen the medication that he so badly needed because his body was racked with pain and even walking was a constant agony. He said for one of the very few times in his life, he prayed for himself. He got on his knees and he said, God, you promised you would always be with me. I need that medication if I'm to continue preaching the gospel. As he prayed, he heard steps. And as the story goes, he saw a pair of feet in front of him. And he looked up to see, for the first time in quite a while, the face of a white man who didn't live in Africa. And the man spoke those famous words, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Mr. Livingston, I'm a reporter. And I've been assigned to do a story on your life. I have two things to tell you. First, I am the biggest swaggering atheist in the face of the earth. Don't even bother to try to convert me. And secondly, somebody gave me this medication to give you. So Mr. Uh, Henry M. Stanley began to travel with David Livingston. And four months later, the biggest swaggering atheist on the face of the earth knelt down on African soil and gave his life to Jesus Christ. Later on, when he wrote a biography of Livingston, Stanley said this. He said, the power of that Christ life was so awesome that I had to buckle. I could not hold out any longer. Finally, Livingston's body began to break down with high temperatures and constant pain. Um, the nationals carried him everywhere from village to village. He could preach. He couldn't walk. They carried him on a stretcher. And, one, and he would preach from the stretcher. And one day after preaching, literally trembling and, and just so frail and sickly, he looked at his helper and said, please take me home. I'm very ill and very tired. I need some sleep. They brought him home, and they were going to put him on the bed. And he said, no, no, put me on my knees. Get me to my knees. He wanted to pray first. So they put him down on his knees, and he clasped his hands and began to pray. And they said that his prayers were so profound, and his time with God was so, just so deep that they didn't feel right being in his presence. And they left him alone, and they waited outside. After a little while, somebody came and said, I need to see Mr. Livingston for a minute. And they said, quiet, he's praying. 
They waited five minutes and looked in. He was still praying. They waited another five minutes. He was still praying. After a long while, they finally, one of them said, he's just got to sleep. He's, he can't keep step like this. And they went in and he, he shook him by the shoulder saying, Wana, Wana, their name for him. And he fell over. He died. And the story says he died exactly the way he lived in the presence of his Lord. He didn't run from God's voice and God's calling. He didn't wave a lamp that had no light in it. He didn't choose earthly pleasure. But the haunting specter of the smoke of a thousand villages had burned itself within his heart so that he could say, my Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I again consecrate myself to thee. My, Je- my Jesus, my King, my life, my all. I consecrate myself. I give myself to thee to follow your will. Just before the, the worship team comes up to sing uh, the last song here. Christmas Day in 1939, King George VI of England gave his, his Christmas address. He didn't know that the cancer that would take his life later that next year was already filling up and, and just racking his body. But he quoted this poem by uh, Minnie Louise Haskins, and he said this. He said, I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. And he said to me, put your hand into the hand of God, and it will be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Put your hand into the hand of God. You want to know what God's will is? You want to follow him? Put your hand into the hand of God. And it will be to you, it will be to me, better than the light and safer than the known. Let's pray together and we're going to sing. And then after that, if, you, if you'd like, the altars are open. Please feel free to come up and spend some time praying, some time with the Lord. Um, but we're going to have a, just a, a quick time of worship and, and just thinking about, just meditate on, what, on God's will and what he's calling you to do in your life today.